Today's show is sponsored by Tripping.com. Save time and money on your next vacation rental by visiting Tripping.com slash Bad Christian. You are now entering the Bad Christian Podcast. Laurel. Yanni. Laurel. Yanni. Laurel. Yo, Yanni, what do you hear? I know what I hear, so bad, Christian. Welcome to the Yanni and Laurel podcast, the Yanni and Laurel cast, everybody. We are back in business. I'm back from my vacation to New York. Let me get some applause to start this episode. Woo! Matt, do you feel like that vacation built onto your legacy? Like, is your how's your legacy? Does the vacation help the legacy? Gosh, that I hate you're the word. Behind? I actually hate the term legacy, to be honest. But it does creep in. It's important, your thinking, but I don't like. Yeah, the you're going to. You're well. That well, that's well, you, exactly you what your lo- you're. You, you took your little girl, and you're building a legacy with her. I, yeah, you're that's not the terms behind. that I use. But yeah, I suppose that's that's possible. But uh, the trip was. Very, very good. It's like intangibly nice. good, basically. Like it was fun, but it transcends fun to have a five year old who's in the age of memory. And you know what I mean? Like she'll remember. You remember stuff from when you're yeah. five. And I didn't have that much experiences. No offense to my parents or anything, but you know, I can't imagine if I'd been to the Statue of Liberty, I've been to the Empire State Building, I've taken the subway. I've, you know, if you'd have had that experience and remembered it and thought it was fun at that age, I think that has to go a long way with confidence in the future. Like, remember when we first went to New York City? It was scary. Like, yeah, you just scared. The first time we went to Chicago, when we moved to Seattle, when we were 20, we were terrified of cities, like going into them. <laughs> the, first, the first time I went to New York City was with Richard Blakeney, a good friend of ours, and now he's dead. Okay. He, he died. You want to spend yep. a, 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 the whole episode on backstory yeah. there, or you just want to drop that dark nugget and move on? Well, he was a yeah. friend of all of ours. We liked him a lot. Now he's not here anymore. Okay. Well, back to yeah. my story. Yeah, I know. <laughs> all right. Sorry about yeah. about our loss. That, that's but. Joey's legacy. His friends die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that one is sad. You know what, though, Matt? Matt, I'm going to push back a little bit here. I still don't think, like, I understand what you're saying, but this is my dad popping out my brain. Go for it. it just, <laughs> I, no, no, sorry. I know hey, what, by, what do you mean? They got buildings here. By the here. way. By the way, Toby's dad's going to be popping out a lot more the older Toby gets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's sure. probably true. Uh, but I'm just saying, all you would, all it is is just a memory. So she goes, yeah, when I was five years old, I remember it. Are you like, crazy? I mean, it's just... It's called I don't know experience, that, like, which is the I, best type yeah, but of you learning have and value. But you have tons of experiences from your everything. I'm just saying. I, I, I understand what you're saying, and nobody's going to agree with me. I hear you. Taking your kid to New York... Uh, taking your kid to New York is great. I I believe that, but I don't know if that necessarily makes me stronger mentally to go on vacation to New York. Like I, I mean, I, that, that I don't know if that prepared me or anything because I still maybe in fact not getting to go made me go move to Seattle and made me go to those cities where I. I mean, like I so think deprive your children of experience, them. therefore they will go do a lot later. If you make, because deprive I was deprived them of it, they'll have such a hunger con- for experiences that it'll work out. <laughs> grew up very conservative Christian, and uh, because so many things were said were bad or wrong or whatever, it pushed me to definitely try things mm-hmm. more than I, I don't. I don't know. I mean, it probably works both ways, but I'm just saying. I, I don't know. I'm I'm more getting at. I don't know if. You know, Georgia's going to be a stronger human being now that she got to go eat a bagel in New York. I, don't, I just don't know that. I don't know if I you can win me bread, over on the, that one. I just don't think there's anything more valuable than 
a variety of experiences. That is the thing of value that helps. That's your foundation for life. I'm not now, saying. Now I, I mean, there's tons I, of. I also wanted to work on a farm as early and possible as soon as possible. Also, now, I know, but the, that's that's my point. It's all for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you look. You get all that. You get to see her. You get to think about what she's going to do. All that stuff. I'm just saying. Actual kid brain stuff. I, I don't know. Oh, it's, all the it's, stuff it's, you're saying. No, awesome. no, it's, it's intangible. For you. It's not a memory. It's not about that. It's like, you know, she will have the unconscious confidence and lack of fear and and boldness going forward because oh, I've seen a tractor before. I know how to turn on a track. I know how to do this. I've, I'm not afraid of a so. You know, those are subconscious things that if you have a lot of experiences, you'll be more comfortable in more environments, and then you have more potential. There's nothing specific about it, but that's what's so. Anyway, it was real fun, and she does real well in, in New York. It was all those things too, but it, to me, it's just transcendent beyond fun that she'll just remember right. that. But, but she, she it's won't. Hilarious. That's the that's the problem is she's a little too young to remember that trip. That's my guess. I remember a lot from when I was five. I remember a whole lot when I was five. I, like I mean, you could have saved probably thousands of dollars if you just went to downtown Seattle where you live. <laughs> to say this is New well, York. Let's get a slice. We could have just watched it Home Alone too. I guess would have, would have done it for that matter. It would I, have. I, I mean, I, I, like I, I totally agree with Matt when it comes to the experiences, and I and Priscilla. Thank God I'm married to her because otherwise we wouldn't take our kids anywhere ever. She's the one that motivates us to do all that stuff. I don't want to spend the daggone money, but I will say this: that if if Rosa, like our oldest, if Rosa was four or five, no way we're going to take an experience vacation like that because she's too young. Mm, now, wow. when we, when totally we went to New, we went to New York two years ago, Rosa was nine. Then we had a seven year old, a five year old and a three year old, three year old. Never going to remember that. Oh, of course no not. Yeah. I, I totally the five agree. year old. The, the, the barely. Right time, but yeah, but th- I'll let you make fun of us. So on I think this. you wasted how your about money. This? Yeah. It was a big, it wasn't even that expensive as I thought it would be. So that's good. Now, how about this though? This is the this is the this is why I think it's hilarious. We went to, of course, the Broadway show, The Lion King, and I'm uh, oh yeah, which was of course awesome. But uh, Toby, you know the phenomenon of sitting next to me in a movie theater and how you don't like it. Yeah. Okay. Now extrapolate that to <laughs> Georgia on the <laughs> in a, a theater in Broadway for two and a half hours <laughs> and tell people what you do tell people what, what it's was, like sitting next to me in a movie theater yeah. why you don't like it and then we'll get down to the level of what Georgia no, what did like. what did Georgia do though yeah just tell me what Georgia did it's, I just want to know and see if it matches <laughs> well my understanding is you don't sit next to me in movies yeah. because I move right. around too much no yeah yeah and, and well, I, well, one the, the thing I want to get to is how you eat because you eat the uh, sour pat and, you, and you're breathing through your nose while I'm trying to sit there, and you do meat, and then you chew on your knuckles, and it's different parts where I'm trying to enjoy the movie, but it's like you're thinking about something like that movie part shouldn't happen or how it was cool. You get more in, in you know a little introspective on the, a certain movie part. So mm-hmm. yeah, but tons of movement for sure. I'm kicking the chair of the people. I mean, I don't think it's that bad, but I understand. Oh that yeah, people, kicking the chair. For people sure. near me d- don't love it because I'm fidgety and stuff like that. And I feel like I'm right. pretty calm and can sit still, relatively speaking. Now, five year old Georgia, high stakes Broadway, all those things. Not that's oh, a little God. tough. Now she's excited about it. Lion King's great. But it's uh, and this is a composite because we went to a couple different shows. So I'm just telling you the way it goes. I've had this experience before, so I'll tell it in a single composite story. But basically, she can not 
sit still. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, <laughs> it, it, it is really, it, and, and, and she wants to talk or, or be, like you said, like she wants to say something or ask a question or whisper, but then that's loud and it's like, stop talking. Right. And it's, it's so tense because there's the ushers, there's the people, it's, it's pretty quiet. There's other people around you and you just know she's disturbing them. It's a little embarrassing. <laughs> We're sitting next to a lady who corrects us multiple times to start with. Really? Oh, gosh. I'm like... Oh. Like, correct y'all's parenting? Well, just like, l- looking over and just trying to be like, like, she's being distracted by this girl, by Georgia. Right. And I'm like, oh, gosh. And I'm trying, you know, and she's, I understand her point, and she's not being rude, so it wasn't the kind of thing where I wanted to fight with her. I, Georgia is, I'm trying to get her sit, sit still, and she's happy, and she's right. excited and everything, but she can't sit still. And... She, you know, she's bumping the person in front of her. She's trying to twist. She'll lay all contorted for a few minutes. Joey knows something about that, and uh, and eventually the, the the lady. And you can't if you can only see this if it's on video. But eventually, we get to the point where the lady beside us, who's paid for this ticket and everything, does this. She takes her program magazine that's eight and a half by eleven inches and holds it up. Like this to the side of her face, to the left side of her face, so that she can't see George. <laughs> oh my lord! That was there's nothing else you can do. You know, you're in this act two. You can't change seats. I mean, it's like right. You know, and she wasn't being mean or anything, but it was really obviously bothering her. But it wasn't that. It wasn't being that bad. Like if I'd have been sitting beside her, I could have handled it. I'd be like, okay, it's a kid. It's, it's fine. There's tons of kids in there. You know, so we got a particularly uppity person, of course. Um, that we yeah, sat it's, 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 well, okay, here's the but. thing. Here, here's why I can sympathize with them. I mean, obviously, I, I sure. want to have your back with your daughter and everything. The only thing I sympathize with is they're thinking, especially if it's like a middle class family, it's like we invested so much money. It was in more this like trip. a snooty rich lady, but and this, still. Oh, you know, and this is the highlight of our trip, and exactly. we paid you know two hundred dollars for this ticket. Mm-hmm. Like we want the perfect experience, sort of thing. But yeah, yeah, I, it would have been very funny for me if I'd have been sitting there because I would have gone, I would have looked at Matt and been like, hey, I'd have tried to get Matt's back, but I'd have kept looking at the lady like, you're right. I, 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 <laughs> no, awful. but I mean, it, it, I, I wasn't it. mad at her. I thought she's a little uppity about it, but it was, you know, I was embarrassed for me and for George. It was just painful because like, ah, oh, this is what it's like being around me, but times a million. <laughs> so, but it, I mean, is there know, any chance this. that that woman, like, what percentage chance, like? She was totally right. Like oh, Georgia that, was kind of out of control, and and she did right. spend a lot of money just to come see that no, show. I, I told, I, I agree. I'm not, I mean, it's not totally right and totally wrong. It's just definitely that. Are you true. saying there, there's just nothing you could have done though? Right? Yeah, I mean, that's I could. We point. could have left. Yeah. There's nothing else. We. I mean, she wasn't all over it, but it, well, I don't think. I think the lady was overreacting a bit. Of course. All right, but now Toby, of course I want, she got gonna, an unfortunate seat. Georgia's wiggly, but it wasn't like she was being yeah. so obnoxious. The usher. It's not like the usher would have come and said, "Y'all to keep it down." It wasn't like that. It was just fidgety to the degree that bothered an uppity lady in a formal setting, which is not great for Georgia for two and a half hours. And I, that's her. You know, and I'm Toby, in your heart, of, we could to get her to be calm. Without what else can you do? Right. You know, Toby, in your heart of hearts, are you thinking to yourself, "Yeah, Matt just." Sucks as a disciplinarian. That's the problem. <laughs> no, no, I don't think he sucks as a disciplinarian, but I, I feel certain if I was that woman sitting there, I would have felt I exactly agree. like no, that's what I'm saying. I'm sympathetic <laughs> to that. I just, it, it wasn't. I like, I would have gone, this little fucking kid here. Yeah. But she <laughs> was just wiggly. It wasn't like she was really doing it, but it was enough. I mean, what I'm saying is it was, it was bothering that lady legitimately. Sure. And right, George, yeah. and, no, I'm not saying she's but, a good lady, and, yeah. <laughs> and I agree. That sometimes there's just nothing you can do. Yeah. You know, I, I could have I mean, left, just, but it wasn't that bad. Yeah. It just was very Matt, what funny would you the have moment done? she raised yeah. up the magazine and just held. Like, she was being polite in a way. She was like, 
this is okay. I'm just going to do what I... She, wasn't, she didn't say anything mean or rude. Right. She just like, this will help me enjoy the show. Puts her magazine up. So, Matt, given that there was some validity to her annoyance, what would you have done if it was a male about your age that actually said, dude, can you tell your daughter to shut the fuck up? Or, dude, come on, man, get control of your child. I'm trying to enjoy this. And was really snotty. Like, how would you have handled that? Would you have just aborted the situation and gotten out of there? No. Or would you have... Would you have gotten mad at the guy? I mean, I'd, I would do everything I can to accommodate. I'm not, I'm not a combative person. Like, I felt bad, so I do whatever I can, including work. I mean, and Georgia wasn't trying to, she wasn't like being bratty and saying, no, I won't, or whatever. She's just like, okay, I'll be, I'll be calm. I can do it. And then she would start wiggling eventually again. Right. You know? So it's, uh, I would have, if somebody was rough to me and I'd have handled it properly, I would have said, well, I'm, I'm, I'll do everything that I can in my power. I'm, this is the best I can do. And then if he said something else, I'd say, well, you better go talk, tell the, call the police or something. Do, do what you got to do. <laughs> go tell the usher. I don't know. This is what we're doing. Like, you know. That's, yeah, I would have probably. If I, wouldn't, gotten, I wouldn't have gotten into altercation. I'd be like, that's your problem, I guess. I don't know what to tell in, you. In this instance, I might have would have said, hey, could we be moved? Or could you find this nice lady a next, another seat? that might, She might be more comfortable yeah. or something, maybe. So I might would have gone that, to that length. But at the same time, I mean, there are tons of kids there, and that's just what it is. But oh, yeah. it, it was that, it, that's my rule. Don't take kids anywhere. Funny. We don't go what? to restaurants. We don't go to New York. We don't go to, <laughs> I right. don't go to downtown Franklin with the kids. It, it, we stand at the house because it's, well, it's, it's an exhausting living nightmare taking your kids anywhere. Cause you yeah, gotta, when you go to a restaurant, you have maybe 15 minutes of peace, and then it's just going to get worse and worse that. and worse. Yeah, but they got to learn. Like how how, how do you experience get you got to fight through it yeah that's right. I agree it's all, all being a kid is is practice they can learn on their that's own what time being a kid is it's practice <laughs> play practice experience that's all there is play practice experience <laughs> equals learning that's how it works that's how you grow but whatever speaking hey, of maybe I'm really old maybe you're that's really old and I, I can't I can't actually handle it anymore <laughs> <laughs> all right guys sorry to interrupt this for a second but i gotta tell y'all about tripping.com now y'all know i went on a trip to new york and we took our daughter georgia i've been telling you about it we found the rental on tripping.com and I, now i have to report the real facts of it which were it was awesome of course and you know why it's because vacation rentals offer way more they're better there's more privacy there's more space there's more choices. I mean, there, you know, this website has really got some amazing stuff. You can you can get vacation rentals that have fully stocked kitchens or extra bedrooms or hot tubs or just a nice New York City apartment right on the lower east side, which is where we stayed. And I it was just right by NYU. It was a beautiful trip. Super meaningful. You heard me talk about it on the podcast. It it was an amazing experience and one that I it would have not been the same thing to go stay in some hotel. We went and lived the New York lifestyle for a week, and it was it was quite meaningful for my daughter and for me. And so I think Tripping.com is a tremendous website because you can join the millions of travelers that find all the savings, rates up to 80% less than traditional hotel rooms, and you can get a cooler place. It's one website that lets you search and compare every home from the world's top vacation rental sites. You don't have to go to all the sites. You go to one site because the studies say people are out there, you know, uh, going to multiple sites, having all the tabs open. The average person visits five or six different sites before choosing a vacation rental. You don't have to do that with tripping.com. They have made the thing easy for you. So if you're dreaming of sitting on a deck in the Smoky Mountains in a cabin or going to a big city or whatever it is, tripping.com. It's a great 
website. It's a great service. That's so. Here's all I got to tell you. This year, you got to save time and you got to save money. And you will do those things when you book the vacation home of your dreams with tripping.com slash bad Christian. That's T R I P P I N G dot com slash bad Christian. Find your perfect vacation rental, tripping.com slash bad Christian. All right. Well, I tell you what's hilarious is, Toby, tell us where you are. Speaking of the opposite of kids here, we're going to shift to from kid time to opposite of kid time. I'm at the Shelton Mansion uh, in Champaign, Illinois, <laughs> Devin's house, and Chris and Devin are here, and we are recording vocals for Emory Record, and it is going really well. I yeah. mean, it's pretty unbelievable. And I mean, it's just been going, it's unbelievable because it's just like we're, I'm getting so much done. I just can't believe it. Tell me it's what just, you did it, today already. <laughs> this made me laugh a minute ago when we got started. Uh, today, uh, I played golf. <laughs> I recorded, I got a song done, and now I'm recording a podcast. We're going to podcast for a- five hours today. You recorded Lee Vogel's right. song and have already played golf. And then what will you do after <laughs> right. this? Uh, the Sh- Shelton Family Barbecue. <laughs> and then you go to a barbecue after. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, But, I mean, we've already gotten, uh, we're through incredible. nine songs. Well, Nine that, or ten songs. That's similar to the effect I was talking about when I went to the studio to work on it with Chris and Dave a few weeks ago. It's like, oh, I just worked for 14 hours yeah. and got unlimited work done. Felt like I was hanging out, super chill, super relaxed. Right. And the only thing you need to be hyper productive in life is to have an ext- – my conclusion is you have to have an extremely distracting, loud, obnoxious, terrible family and then yeah. get away from them. Oh God! And you will be productive beyond your wildest dreams. I mean, I'm telling you, I I describe, (laughs) I tell people this all the time. My favorite thing is to hang out with the family, and my second favorite thing is for all the kids to be away to get away from that family. My second. I mean, I'm I'm telling you, there's there's a part of me. I, I think of I think of the mental condition of toby's mind right now and i'm like damn he's lucky right now I know, good I know, gosh I know. he gets to go to bed without having to do anything he you know i'm not saying any sort of thing about laziness i'm talking about you're not responsible for another person it's That's unbelievable you wake up you go get your cup of coffee you do exactly what you i mean it is just amazing especially feeling. for creativity oh it's just nothing yeah. it's irreplaceable to have that personal attention focus to spend on your own thoughts. It's unbelievable how productive that is 100%. when it's not interrupted. It's, it's funny y'all say I, that. I, I was thinking let's about Let's get it rid of week, our kids. Like, like, let's just not be dads anymore. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I'd love that. I, I was thinking this week, like, um, it, it, are kids the, the main factor that have held back women for all of, uh, since the dawn of well, man? Like, think uh, about this. Of course this. It, they be, are. Because men, men don't have not men have not watched kids or helped kids uh, grow really that much. Like men have, you know, have kind of shirked their responsibility sometimes. Like, you know, Jess, definitely our wives all do more interaction, care, nurturing, all the stuff with kids. And so all women, uh, all mothers, creativity has been zapped unreal. Oh yeah. And and their time and their time, their energy. I know. I mean, women are just as creative, obviously just as smart, if not smarter, more creative. Uh, they're great at, multitasking everything and because they have kids and men go off and get get some time to, to do something you know since like i said the earliest man women have, have been at a have been held back a ton like well, and if, here's if all the women conundrum. said i'm not going to watch kids anymore they would just annihilate and here's the conundrum and that they're in here, here's the position that they're in 
they honestly would not choose otherwise because like I mean just just take take your wife take take Jessica and you in the same room and I guarantee you within five minutes she'll be like no 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 we have to do yeah, because she is way right. more in tune with the kids she's smarter yes. than you with the kids and so even though it sounds good to our wives to be like hey what if I just gave you complete freedom I'll stay home with the kids there's a part of them that wouldn't be able to let go because they have that connection with the kids that yeah. they just well you can't, can talk about individuals all you know all you want and that being true or being true for the most part but as a group there's no doubt about it there's no way i mean you can be a sensitive husband there can be women that aren't this way of course there's all those cases uh but especially historically and matter of factly it's a very real and measurable impact on women's ability to do other things there's no way around that More, physically yeah. it's just i mean we, we we're actively trying to counteract that now because we think we can engineer society to be more productive for more people if we can get more out yeah. of women and that's my attitude about that situation is if we worked harder to get the most out of the most people that would include a lot higher productivity from women and therefore the child care part is one to really work on and then we'll see what kind of Juice we can really get out of all these women because I bet there's a lot in there. That's my philosophy. But I, I, mean, I will having say, kids murders you. It kills that's you. Exactly what it does. if that's, you have a kid, it murders you. It murders your time. Your like that's what I'm yep. saying. Today I was productive, and part of that productivity without kids around was getting to play golf with my friend Devin. Yeah, <laughs> Jess I mean, did not get to do that today. Nope. She woke up with three kids wanting food, having to get out of the house. She had to get to work, get the kids to school. All that. I mean, she didn't have any of that. Do and you I'm know, here being creative, singing and playing golf. Do you and know how many for hours? Do you, do you know how That's many true. women I have heard say I love my kids more than life itself, and five minutes later say they robbed me of everything <laughs> from the time <laughs> no. they were born to the time they were fifteen. They robbed me, like all it's of my both. aspirations, everything I wanted to do, everything I wanted to go after. Those kids robbed me from. I mean, it's just crazy. It's worse now too, because there used to be a little bit more of a you know community and family system. Like yeah. you would have kids, but your your fan your family both sides would be there, yeah. and you could kind of like take it. Not that you would get away necessarily, but there were people watching your kids when they went and played outside, also, or there's people watching your kids. And that you, that you, a lot more hours too, right? You walk out, yeah, yeah. I mean, we just now everything is so scary, and you have to be on top of everything, and all, everything matters. Just like Matt was saying, you got to you have to take your kid across the country. Because if not, they won't be strong. <laughs> I don't even know what that means anymore. Like, I, no way am I going to make it as a parent. And, and yep. I mean, I, I do the yep. best I can, and Jess does way better. Well, I believe that hyper parenting is what actually drains the the last of the of the productivity right. out of parents. Is just well, to I'm think briefly that you have to every minute this. to be doing a, a program or thing versus let your kids play independently. But, I'm going to briefly yeah. insert this into the conversation that I feel like I am experiencing the end of, like, Rosa's oh, no. little girl childhood. That's I mean, it, uh, have you seen At it? what age? I mean, have you seen a recent picture of her? Yeah. Like, I saw a picture of her on Priscilla's phone, and I had to do a double take. I was like, oh, I, I, like, I literally, it, it came, the, the oh, shit came from the heart. I was like, oh, shit. What, how old is she? <laughs> like, she's 11. Yeah. I, I mean... Do you 11. remember a few years ago I said at when tell me if this is not true I believe it's on the podcast but I I think I told you that you you can have a kid until they're about 12 and then they're just a person. Do you remember me saying yeah. that? Is that yeah. about yeah. turning out to be about right? 
Is that the effect? You're she talking is about? definitely like. Here's the thing about Rosa is she is not ready to move on from childhood. She still has the silliness and everything. But when I see her in public or at a playground doing somersaults and, uh, you know, getting on the level of her little brothers and playing with them and acting all silly, I just take it in. Like I, I, totally. I just stare at her and I take it in for all oh, it's worth no. because <laughs> we're talking within a year. That's gone. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I li- literally God. maybe in two months it's gone for all I know. I mean, she's in the sixth grade. Uh, most parents have, at that age, they've had to say goodbye to the silliness of childhood. Yeah. Ruby now gets together with other girls for Bible study. <laughs> <laughs> like, we had to buy her a Bible because they all had Bibles, and they get wow. together and do Bible study groups. And I'm just like, good. Gosh, she's eight years old. What are you talking about getting together for an organized Bible Accountability study? partner. She needs accountability. Of course. Yeah, she does. <laughs> so. She does it for networking, too. Yeah, also for networking. <laughs> no, that's oh, just, but yeah. I, I, I mean, I am happy. It, it is crazy. Like to, it, it's, it's so funny thinking like I, I, I guess I'm an older dad. I have an eight-year-old, and I'm mm-hmm. 42. That doesn't feel that old, You're but old. I, I always think people when, you know, that means – my kids, I'll be mid-50s when they're in high school or graduating or whatever like that. It doesn't seem that old, but that means I'll definitely be in my 60s most likely when my kids get married or something. How if about I this? You're probably in the, t- you know, sing- a fraction of 1% of oldest human fathers in human history. In human history, yeah. <laughs> You're in the top yeah. fraction of a 1% of oldest humans to ever have children. <laughs> I know. Technically. I, I'm, I mean, I'm it's gonna- insane. I'm going to try not to exaggerate or go overboard, but I will tell you guys that I'm the happiest I've ever been in my whole entire what? life. What? I, I, I mean, because Pris- of this nice conversation we've been having for the last 10 minutes? No, Priscilla, like, and I were, Priscilla and I were sitting in a coffee shop. Hold today. on a second. You, are we trying to go to a whole other topic that you got to describe why you're the happiest? Ever? I mean, this sounds <laughs> no. like a 20. Maybe we start the next episode here is what I'm saying. I mean, we, we can, I but I, I wasn't planning on I wasn't planning on spending a whole lot of time well, with it. I'm, that, that's kind of, we could do that. Yeah, I mean, I mean let's just, it could take a little bit of time since so it's the happiest you've right, ever been I'd in like your life. I'd like to hear enough details that we don't have time for right now, so why don't you park that, that and we'll start the Yeah, it's just a teaser. It. It's a teaser it's a for teaser. the next episode. You're going to find out how... Now, it's the happiest you've ever been. I'm the, I, what's, Matt, what's the over-under of how long this lasts? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll put it this way. It's not likely to be true when we tape the next episode. <laughs> no, that's what I'm worried about. If we wait an episode, you'll go, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> now, I'm on like a, like a three-month roll. Okay, good. Oh, well, we'll wow. save that. Right. Let's get to our guest, but we'll save that, and I'll add to that now that you bring that up. <laughs> I have entered a slightly new emotional chapter in my life, so we'll do that on the next episode. We'll try a real teaser. Oh, there. good lord! Everybody's got joy and emotions. I know, maybe <laughs> joy we'll see. And Holy emotions. Cow. The joy was for me. The emotions was for Matt yeah, just now. Right. <laughs> yeah, but I am right, we're gonna, very, yeah. very, very, very happy to hear how good the Emory Records going there. And sorry me to people too, who man. think you know what I'll point make this point because it's pretty interesting. We have just simply not scheduled this thing, and it's run over time, so I apologize to people that have supported it, but really, it's going more fast and better and more efficient than any record we've ever done. It's just we've had way, way too many gaps between work days because we've been distracted, but the actual work we're doing and how fast it's going and how natural it is is just so exciting, and I cannot, I mean that sincerely, not like promo for the damn album, I cannot wait to hear what y'all sang. 
I just can't wait because yeah. I feel so good about the tracks that are there. I cannot wait to hear what y'all are singing. It's gonna be it, yes, good stuff. I feel like up. you. I feel like you guys have had a rebirth of excitement about your own music. I think we like, have seriously, to. y'all y'all have not talked about your music like this in a long time. I and think that's true. And, and the, and the quality yeah. hasn't taken a hit because of it, but I'm just saying. This is such a neat record. Once again, like I love. Obviously, I'm. I always say this: if I'm not the biggest fan of Emory, then what am I doing? Like, why am I creating music that I wouldn't be a fan of? But it, this, this listening to these songs, like you hear them, the instrumental version, then you write vocals over them, and then you work that out with the guys. Like that's what we were doing here this week, and it's just, it's just so neat. Like it's just our, our music is really good. Emory is a great <laughs> band. Yeah, like it is so a great band. Like some of the the way. time changes, some of the vocals where Devin's well, singing I, I, or I'm singing, we're training all the other stuff. Gosh, it's really cool. I want to get into this for just a second. Do we have a second? Because I was just thinking about this. I was thinking about the simplicity, and I love the Joe Seven Forty Seven songs. For those of you who don't know what that is, that's a band that Matt, Devin, me, Toby were part of for a while. It was just me, Toby, and another drummer. Whatever. But Toby was the songwriter, and they were. You know, way more simplistic than Emory, but still very, very good songs. When did you cross that? Like, I, I'll never forget. I'll never forget. I went to an Emory show super early on. I was like, yeah, uh, that's, that's pretty good. I mean, we're talking six months into you guys being in Seattle. But when I came back the following year and you guys uh, played Ponytail Parades, I was completely floored. Like, Toby, did you cross and and I know Matt's a huge uh, contributor as as far as that song is concerned, but did you feel yourself like crossing a line of going from I'm a good songwriter to I'm a really 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 good songwriter? Like was there a shift because if you take the week's end, it is a whole new level from Joe 747. Mhm. It's kind of like um, how you became a really re- when you really came into your shut own. Shut up! It's gonna be a joke, and I'm being serious. I'm very curious. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I zoned you out. I was playing Candy Crush. I didn't realize. I didn't know. No, I mean, I don't. I mean, I do think I'm a good songwriter, but I think I, I probably ignorantly always did. You know, you know what I mean? It wasn't like one day I was like, oh, I'm way better. Than I used to be. I used to say, hell, man. I used to be kick ass in Joe Seven Forty Seven. I used to be kick ass. You know, and then it took a lot of other people saying, wait a minute, this and that, but. I mean, that's just a culmination of us just doing music for a long yeah. time. When you do something more and more, I, I mean, we're not good at doing this podcast, but we've definitely gotten way better. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you do something just over and over and over, you just get better at it. And so we'll talk more about that album. And if you want yeah. to check out we uh, on our Devin and I's podcast, Song Rescue, the last episode, we talk a little bit about the album, a little bit about the lyrics, and Devin even plays a little snippet of uh, one of the new songs. You can hear it there. So go to songrescue.com or the podcast Song Rescue and check it out. But uh, let's get to Tim here. Well, we got some good teasers here for the next episode. Mm-hmm. So, you listeners, but uh, Tim's going to be a great guest. Uh, it's, this is going to gonna be really good. So, we'll bring him on. Okay, guys. I have for you what is, I can say without a doubt, my favorite sponsor that this podcast has ever had. I'm proud to announce that this podcast is, in fact, sponsored by the greatest rock band of this or any generation, Emory. The band is Emory. That's E-M-E-R-Y. And, oh my gosh, I don't know if you've heard them, but they're incredible. They're, like, really, really good. They do, like, screamo stuff. Uh, I mean, it's like Christian rock, you know, fundamentally, but it's, like, really cool Christian rock. Like, they're Christian rockers, and, like, man, I don't even know, but, like, if you see them live, it's, like, crazy with the pit. But, 
You know what I mean? Like, it, trust me, you'd really like it. Anyway, Emory is going to be playing from Washington State all the way to Texas. That means, let's see, I'll, I'll say the names. They're going to Seattle, Portland, Sacramento, uh, Los Angeles, San Diego, Phoenix, and El Paso, Texas. What an awesome group of guys going all the way out there to El Paso, Texas. you got to give them props for that. Anyway, their live show is, it is well, you know, it's, it's not an exaggeration. It's by far the best live show I've ever seen. Um, it's the most energetic, and I think it's the most technically, like, best, well-played music I've ever heard. And I don't think there's anybody that's ever been to a show that didn't like it as far as I, as far as I can read up on the internet. There's a VIP set. 68 is terrific, and they're going to be on the same tour. So please go see those shows. These are the first week of June. They're coming up really soon. Get your tickets now. Some of them are going fast. Some of them are going to for sure sell out, and I won't tell you which ones. And you can get them at emorymusic.com. Uh, go see the best band. It's like, I don't know, probably like twice as good. It's, it's like Queen plus the Foo Fighters and then a little 25% better than that combination, basically. Emorymusic.com. All right, Tim Rimel, thank you for being here, man. Uh, I've been looking forward to this uh, interview for a while um, just because you, you got a hell of a story there. Uh, <laughs> you've, been, you've, you've done a lot. You're an author. You're a rethinker. And also on your website, timrimel.com, you're a former outreach director of the Memphis, Tennessee uh, ex-gay ministry, Love in Action. And I guess that's basically where they say you aren't gay and you, they can fix you. Is that, is that what that was? That, that pretty much sums it up. That's about it, yeah. <laughs> Let's start with that rethinker title. What do you mean by that? I like the, uh, the, the, what, the connotation there. Tell me about that. So, I, you know what? I adopted that because when you grow up in the fundamentalist faith like I did, you have ideas that are already in your head. We already believe the, the tenets of the faith. We already believe a certain way. So it's almost impossible to get out of that until something strikes you, until something says it, things aren't adding up the way they should. So mm-hmm. you're either forced to live in this cognitive dissonance or you start to rethink what you thought, to, you know, what you believe to be true. So in my case, it was just I started to take things apart brick by brick to find out what it was. And it was incredibly uncomfortable. And it took many years. Um, but I'm a rethinker. I, and, and, and I've approached life that way. So since even taking apart my faith, I do the same thing with my politics, with what I think about racism, with what I think about women's rights and all of those big topics today. I had to go back and rethink and, and reexamine what I thought and believed to be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the that's the right concept to do. It's being, I guess, that's just being a, a rationalist in some degree. It's taking the information, the best information that you have. Up, I think of it as updating is what I've been trying to tell myself. Like, yeah, I've, I've been wrong. I am wrong. My gosh, am I wrong? And then it's not that I keep going. It's not a matter of going back and forth. It's more a matter of just updating. You know, content. Oh, better information and not being afraid to assess things for what they really are. Because you yeah. can't really help it when you grow up. I mean, and it's not even. Right. It's almost nobody's fault because you have to grow up in some context and culture. And of course, it's not going to be perfect. And of course, you can't dissect it as a child. So this is the state we're all born into. Right. But you know, the, the odd thing about that is when you grow up in that culture, because I'm 53 years old now and I have two daughters one is 19, one is 17, almost 18 years old. And the, where I come at this, though I, though I consider myself a progressive, both in religion and, and politically, I still have very, um, very traditional, very conservative thoughts when it comes to gender identity and those kinds of things. I mean, I, you know, I understand I've even researched and read and written about 
different things about gender. And yet I still, in my mind, because of how I was raised and because it's so ingrained in me, I still see women have their role and men have their role that those two shouldn't Interesting. go together. Let's get back to that once we go through the story part of, of your life, because that part is pretty compelling. So let's let's get through some of the biographical stuff here, and then we'll get back to the gender things that you have. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you could tell us what men and women are supposed to do in a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll lay it out for you. Well, I think you're right. One of one of the biggest things, and that's what I where we could start at is you, you, your worldview, your view of God, everything. I don't think that that can be really extrapolated ever, maybe from what you were taught by the, those people you trust. So you probably, I mean, I, I don't know what you can tell us what age you were when you first realized. Maybe you, I don't know if you thought I'm just different, or did you think I'm gay? Like, what, when when did that started happening because did you grow up in a conservative Christian home? Look, my home, let me explain. So my family's from the Midwest South, right? So my father grew up in, in Missouri or was born in Missouri. My mom was born in Oklahoma. So we had very strong Southern roots when we got out to California. And my grandfather, who was born and raised in Missouri, had no more than a second grade education. So we often said of him that he didn't know much, but he sure knew Jesus. So that was that was the underlying sentiment of our family and of our faith is that you didn't need to know much. You know, education wasn't as big of a deal as it was understanding who God was. So so I grew up in that environment where, you know, this was uh, in 1973 is when the American Psychiatric Association came out and said, no, homosexuality is a normal variation of sexuality. I didn't realize that I was gay because I didn't know what that was until 1979. So I was about 14 years old when I when I had that epiphany that, oh, my gosh, something's wrong with me. Um, So. So it was a very strong sense of who God was, of what faith was about, of what our religion was about. And then coming to terms with this, this can't be happening to me because I'm a Christian. This doesn't happen to Christians. Um, you know, so so from that point of when I became an official Christian at the age of 15, it was trying to put the pieces together. It was living with this intense cognitive dissonance to the point that my body was physically reacting trying to make sense of all of this. And so I just kept shoving that down and putting it away and pretending that it wasn't there. And then I, I mean, I went into ministry almost immediately at the age of 15 and continued on until I got into conversion therapy. Um, at that point, I was about 24 years old when I entered the program. Tell me about getting into ministry at 15. Why that? Was that just an obvious natural thing to do? Or was that, you know, like a defense mechanism yeah, yeah, against yeah. yourself almost? No, you know what? I was raised that way. I mean, again, my grandfather was a Pentecostal preacher. My father was uh, involved in prison ministry, youth ministry. So that was just something that we did as part of a family. And I had a propensity in that direction. So I started playing the piano when I was 13 years old. And for some reason, I know it's all cliche, but I was very good at it. So I, I got that, involved. Oh, what, Liberace is a cliche or something? It's, it's just gay the, piano know, or what? Gay, Being good at art? musicians. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I, so I went as soon as I got involved with church, uh, my parents had kind of been in this backslidden position at that point. So I went to the church down the street from us, which was in a, was a bad church and immediately got involved with the youth ministry. Started playing on the, the worship team with the youth ministry, got involved with the uh, worship in the main church. And then because of how I played, I started playing for black choirs and, you know, with gospel choirs. So so just kind of kept expanding. So that was just a, a part of. Mm-hmm. who I was, a natural part of who I was. And, and for me, as an introvert, music was such an expression. It was that, that part when everybody else was raising their hands and speaking in tongues, I was playing the piano. You know, that, that, was, that was my worship to God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Man. And so uh, playing music and you're in the ministry and everything's going good. And then you said about 24, 
what what changed? Did you get outed or what what happened? No. Um, and things weren't going well. Things were just being uh, shoved down inside. So so I had I struggled so much with anxiety that by the time I was 19 years old, I, I dwindled down to about 115 pounds. I'm five foot ten. So I, I couldn't keep food down. I couldn't eat. Just, I was just consumed with this anxiety. And I, I kept praying. I kept pleading with God to fix me. But I didn't make the connection between trying to avoid being a gay person and a Christian and having all this anxiety. I saw those really? as separate things. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't. I didn't say I was smart. What would be like a snapshot <laughs> of, uh, of how you were praying at the time? Like, how were you? What was your language of yourself and your impulses and your feelings? And how did you, how did you phrase that to God, if that's not too personal of a question? No, I, I pleaded with God. I saw myself as nothing. I was garbage. I, I couldn't seem to, to pull it together. There was um, nothing good about me. And, and, you know, in the Pentecostal faith and, and fundamentalism, and, and there's, there's that background that reiterates that without Christ, you're nothing, that if you mm-hmm. do something good, it's because of him. It's not because of anything yeah. that you are. Um, so it was always when you get the applause or when people are, are happy with what you do and your talent, you have to defer that. This is, you know, thank you, Jesus. It's because of you. Mm-hmm. So there was no acceptance or even seeing myself as worthy of anything other than than garbage other than taking that repeatedly to God and pleading with God, you, you know, please take this away from me. I'm a sinner. I'm a filthy sinner. All of these things that I kept bringing to God. So, so nothing had changed in my mind is that those things kept perpetuating and I was pleading. I was memorizing books of the Bible. I was praying. I did eventually talk to people about it, but again, it was reiterated that, well, that's because you're a sinner Mm-hmm. And you have to confess this to God. And as long as you, you keep confessing and keep pleading with God, he'll take that away from you. But so, you were thinking that you had gay tendencies or homosexual impulses or that you were gay, which you weren't. Like, how did you think of that? I didn't, I didn't take the gay identity. I didn't, I didn't even know what that was, to be mm-hmm. honest. There was, there was nothing for me to reference at that point in my life. So even through the 70s and 80s, and um, you know, I was a teenager in the 80s. So going through that time period, I saw more about homosexuality. But unfortunately, that was the AIDS epidemic. And mm-hmm. so if you saw anything about homosexuality, they, right. they had anal sex and they had AIDS. Right. So those were the two things that I knew about. I didn't do either of those things. I wasn't involved. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about gay bars. I didn't drink. I still don't drink. I didn't know anything about any of those things. So I just grew up with I'm I have these feelings towards the same sex, but it's not exactly the same because I'm not acting on it. So I'm not really gay, but it's these feelings are there. And you so try to pray them it. away at least. Mm-hmm. Right. I tried to pray those feelings. And of course, you know, with pornography and all the things that, that boys do uh, in that yeah. time. Of their and life. when so, you would watch pornography, it would be gay pornography. Or both um, or what? It would, it would be both. Gay pornography was not as accessible for me. Uh, and I, you know, I remember That's I tell true. the story in my going gay book is, is when I went when I turned 18, I went to the video store because I was going to rent a, a porn video. And the only account that we had was my parents' account. So I knew that that wasn't a good idea. So I waited and I got my own credit card and I show up at this porn video or porn place to rent this video. And I work up the nerve to go back behind uh-huh. the seat with the curtain. Yeah. Was, you know how yeah. I used to. So I go behind the curtain and I'm looking and I'm just inundated with all of these videos and I'm just looking at all this, this, you know, these sections. And, and so, you know, my brain is lighting up with how exciting this is. And so I didn't get a gay video because I was too embarrassed to bring that out, but I did get a video. I grab it. And then, I, and then of course I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, I'm back here too long. I got to get out of here. <laughs> all right. So I go to the counter and, and nobody was in the store when I got there because it was first thing in the morning. And I go to the counter and somebody from somewhere was, had stepped up to the counter. So I'm standing behind them 
sweating with this porn video in my hand, <laughs> waiting for them to get out of the way. And, and I'm hiding it. I'm trying to, you know, so nobody can see it. So I, I finally get up to the counter and I set it down in front of the guy and he looks at it and he goes, oh, do you have a beta machine? <laughs> said, oh god no no, no. All this. so he goes hang on a second so he runs behind the curtain and i mean i'm dripping in sweat at this point i'm so embarrassed and so ashamed that i'm thinking oh my gosh he's gonna see those naked people yeah you know so so he comes as back if he didn't work there he worked there <laughs> as if he didn't work there and had never seen naked people so he you know we first wanted to go back there <laughs> I get the video, I take it home, and immediately, you know, when I was finished with it, I brought it right back and dropped it off as quickly as possible to get it get it away from me, and right. you know, I didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. But but it was there was so much shame around my sexuality, and and you know, just seeing heterosexual sex was just you know this uh, feeling of shame and embarrassment and excitement, and it all kind of came yeah. out. At this time, when you're talking about all the anxiety you were going through, I I can relate to that too. I grew up very Pentecostal conservative. Uh, and I, the same thing for me, I would just pray, 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 God, please say, do you, was it for you? Did you tell yourself if I could, if God, if you take away like same sex attraction or whatever this is, then did you think that was just the big one? The other sins would be, you could live with them and it wouldn't cause as much anxiety. Was that the one that was causing the anxiety? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That, that was the worst of the worst. You know, and of course, of course, again, in context in the eighties, when you had, uh, 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 Jerry Falwell Sr., you had Pat Robertson, you had Jimmy Swaggart, you had Jimmy and Tammy Faye Baker. All of this was going on where, where homosexuality was just the worst of the worst, and we had to pray yeah. away it. It was this, this cancer on society. So I was growing up hearing all of these messages and thinking, well, I certainly don't want that. And I right. knew that if, if I gave into it, that eventually I would be one of those gays that would go off, I'd get AIDS, I'd die early, and I would be just mm-hmm. a shameful story of what could have been. Yeah. Man. So anybody so, that's your age that is gay grew up. I mean, that's that's just kind of hits me as you say it there. That anybody that grew up in the seven, you know, born in the seventies or so, and is gay now, had to go through that time. And no matter what, that programming's in there. It's kind of like the way that it's kind of the way we feel about something like smoking yeah. weed now. Like, oh, well, I, I know it's bad, but now I also know it's not bad. But I still also know it's bad. Or you know what I mean? There's, there's more right. unconscious things. I still, you get a little, you st- you know that that you can't ever really get over all the details of having grown up in a time when it was taught that right. in that way that it was AIDS and anal sex and death and the craziest of the crazies. That's you know that's almost insurmountable to get rid of all the effects of that. And that's something I don't think I've thought about too much till you said that. Well, I, you know, but I think all of us, I mean, I think that, and that's, you know, as I begin to rethink things, you really have to put things in context. When you read the Bible, you have to put it in context. When mm-hmm. you read, you know, interpretations of the Bible, put it in context. Because when it was interpreted, it was a different time period than when it was written. Mm-hmm. And it was written to mean one thing, it was interpreted to mean something else, because that, that's how we operate. So in context, growing up in the evangelical faith like I did, and the, and the many people that I've interviewed who have gone through conversion therapy, the one thing that I see over and over again is that when you grow up in the, in the fundamentalist faith, is that there's something that gets a hold of you. There, there's this fear inside that drives you that really tells you what your life is going to be like. So it's a lot easier for somebody who didn't come from that background than it was from somebody who came from my background, where that was so ingrained that I just couldn't escape those fundamental truths at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now you enter, uh, how did you get hooked up with gay conversion therapy? Like what's the pathway into that specifically? So 
Again, so we have to look at the time period. So back when I got involved, it was called ex-gay ministry. And there's three different types. You have ex-gay ministry, conversion therapy, and repair okay. therapy. Okay. So ex-gay ministry really was about studying the Bible. It was about being a good Christian. It was it was submitting to God very much based on how I grew up in the experiential fundamentalist faith where God, you, you knew God because you could feel God. And then the mm-hmm. Bible just confirmed what you already knew to be true about God. So in ex-gay ministry, it really was a lot of accountability. We lived in houses. So the Love and Action was based on a residential program. We had two houses where you had about 12 guys living together, which I know sounds like it sounds like the start of a porn movie. Right. <laughs> but you've got 12 guys who are living together, but we're all there because we want what's best for us. We want what what we believe God wants for us. So yeah. we came from different aspects of life. There are a lot of different stories that go into that. We were roughly the same age in our early 20s. The youngest guy there was 18, who was the youngest guy that had ever been admitted to the program. But the rest of us were 20s, early 30s, and we were trying to do what we believe God wanted us to do. High expectations probably, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and there's there's a, a certain level where the shame does go away because for the first time, you're able to talk about it. Yeah. You're able to right. speak about what's going on with all of these people that understand exactly what your life has been like. That's interesting. Yeah. So there's an th- automatic therapeutic effect, even though it doesn't yes. last. Right. Well, and the therapeutic effect is, is I found it. The, these people all agree with me mm-hmm. is that this is what God wants for us. And so we're going to live our best lives for God. And there is that moment. I can tell you personally. Having lived, you know, again, as what, what I didn't know at the time was just what was just being human is that when you're that age, you've got all the hormones and things going on in your life. You know, sexuality is certainly heightened. But when it's sexuality that, that you don't want, the best thing that can happen for you is for that to just go away. So the feeling that you get being in that environment is that you start to suppress your sexuality and you you, you feel that I confess yeah. this. I believe in God is healing this. And oh, my gosh, it's going away. I'm not having these feelings anymore. But what's happening is you're not feeling anything. You just, all of that just goes away. You suppress everything mm-hmm. that you're feeling inside. And then you start to perceive that as healing. Wow. And then this gets perpetuated. So by the time we ended our one year live in program and we, we graduated the program, I had actually applied for leadership to, to go and be a leader in the house, but was denied for whatever reason. But what happened was six months later is that uh, in 1991 at this point is that we had all of this media that were contacting the ministry. So we had, you know, uh, Good Morning America, ABC News, they were interested in this concept of healing from homosexuality. We as a staff, then were taking all of these calls. And I had gone to the director at that time and I said, I would like to be your outreach director. So as a as a musician, as you know, somebody who's put together these programs and working church services, I think we can do this really well. We had plays, we had testimonies, we had, and I went and I tapped some of the people that I'd worked with that were phenomenal musicians and I brought them in. So we were traveling around the Bay Area giving this message of freedom from homosexuality through Jesus Christ. And it was very powerful because it was very emotional with people that that wholeheartedly believe this message, speaking to an audience of people that wanted to believe that this was true. So at that point, as things started to happen, is that we, again, ended up all over the nation. We were on all of these media outreaches. I was traveling the country, speaking in colleges and churches and radio programs and speaking on this topic. And we believed that we had changed because, again, being in this cocoon, a safe environment with people that believed and felt the same way that you did, mm-hmm. there's just something that's empowering. You, you feel like you are speaking the words of God and that you've got this message that the world needs to hear, and you feel like you're living it and you're being genuine to the message while you're continuing to push down these feelings, which at the same time are 
you know, and your faith is saying, well, everybody struggles with sin. Everybody's tempted. And this just happens to be my temptation. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, that's, so that's how we dealt with it. Wow. So when, it, go ahead, Toby. I was going to say, and it didn't work. I know that's a loaded question there, but I mean, like when, so you went through it, you were feeling good, and, but it, were you? I mean, I, one of the things you said that really stands out to me, it must, it must have felt really good in the beginning to like, almost like a brotherhood or a family where you didn't have to hide your secret anymore, right? Like that, like that anxiety probably just, oh man, I can just be real, even though it's wrong. I can just be real. And then you get through it and, and, and then you're in it. And then do you have to start hiding again? Like, does that, does the hiding start coming back quickly? Um, how do I answer that question? What happens, I think, is, is that as you, as, as we would graduate, we leave the program, is that things started to come undone, is that you start to see the leadership of which I had become a part of was saying one thing, which we did believe, but life was very difficult because once you're out of that and you have access now to computers, yeah. you have access to all these other things that you didn't have for so long, it becomes a little bit more difficult. So as the guys were coming through this program, some of them had said right on, I, I saw that the leadership was saying one thing, but they didn't seem to be living that out. Much of our leadership was married, but they didn't have the greatest of relationships with their wives. So we, mm-hmm. we saw that as some kind of a, a contradiction between what was going on. Although I had, you know, I, I made it in my head, so everything was just fine. And they were my friends. Mm-hmm. So, so for me was after I got out of that program and I were traveling across the country, I met a lady or young lady who would eventually become my wife. And she was a new Christian. Our families had known each other for a long time because our parents went to church together. And she started traveling with me and people would ask her questions about what is it like to be engaged to an ex-gay guy. So we, you know, I had this expectation that once we got married, because the ministry taught that once you get married, God will just give you that special attraction for that one person. And, you know, unlike straight guys, you don't have to worry about being attracted to these women because you're always going to be attracted to this one person. And even right. though you'll feel temptations for other guys, it won't be the same. So the reality is you have to deal with that person you're living with. And uh, in, in a moment of humility, I had written an article for the Goodman Project where I told my story. And it's not very kind in my book, Going Gay, because I do talk about my hatred that grew towards my wife. And so I expressed that in in this article. And I said, at one point, I I just, you know, I prayed that that God would just kill her because that was my only way out since divorce wasn't an option. Yeah, yeah. And so I got all of these comments about how awful, how could you say that? You call yourself a Christian. And so I went to her and I said, all right, you tell your story. I said, I'm going to let you, you know, give you an article. You tell your own story. But I said, I need you to address this. And she said, she goes, look, I've been in a lot of relationships. And she said, I can't think of one relationship where the, the partner hasn't said to the other, I wish you were dead. She said, at some point, you're just like, this is, you know, one of us has got to go. Right. So she's, she's like that, you know, that, that's just ridiculous. But, but I did ask her that question, you know, what point did you realize that I was gay? And she goes, it was a honeymoon. And I'm like, man, you know, even as a gay guy, oh, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so that that's the ministry, the people telling you the thing that's supposed to like heal you and teach you and all that stuff told you you should get married and that that your life will change and it'll be for good. But that really like do you look on that now as like almost like a lie? Like did, did, did they put you in a 
basically forcing you to be in a sinful situation? Like, because you're only out, because obviously you're a Christian, you can't get divorced. So that right. you just hoped maybe, she, how can she be gone? Well, you, you know, I could see thinking that, like, it, you know, no. that would be the Christian way out if she died. Exactly. Which, exactly. It, the most vicious way, but, it, you know, and, and so <laughs> do you think that, like, the people that you trusted and were learning from and all of a sudden, you, do you look back on it as, man, that was really dangerous what they, they did? Yeah. Leading you that way. Right. It, 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 clearly, it's, uh, I have a different perspective now than I did back then. Well, and, you well, know, the, the thing that, that my wife then or my ex-wife now said was she said, it's not that I couldn't have lived with you. I couldn't have lived like that. But she said, nobody told me the truth. I just I couldn't right. get the truth. It was right. this ideology that just, you just kept talking about. You just kept pushing forward. But she said, I never felt like there was I could I just couldn't That's get the crazy. truth out of you. So it could it would have even been easier to, to look at her in the eyes and go, honey, I am gay. I want to be married to you. We think this will be the best thing, but let's see if we can work this out. But this is the way it is, and maybe this could work for us, and we can have this type of arrangement. What do you think? She could have right. po- potentially consented to that, right? at least. Right, yeah. right. But she didn't have even that opportunity. No, and, and you know, the, the thing was, even, even six years after our marriage, so she divorced me, and it was six years that I went through this. I, I just went into isolation. I, you know, I was so embarrassed that I didn't talk to people from the ministry anymore. And I, I, the last ministry job I had was a, a large church where I was a music minister. She divorced. I left the church for six years. I never came out. I just kept thinking, "What? What did wow. I miss? How did this wow. happen? Why? Why am I here?" And, so um, you just still thought it was working, but you had a failed marriage. You still didn't I connect didn't, that. In that way, at that time, like when you I, got divorced, let me ask you what what was the terms of it? She's like, I can't take it anymore because you're gay. I mean, that wasn't why you got divorced, though. No, that's not why we got divorced. She actually she had met somebody else. Okay, mm-hmm. but that still is th- these things are obviously connected. But she, but yes. it wasn't. Neither of you did she think at the time in her brain. She's like, well, he, you know, he's actually gay, so I just gotta have to find somebody else, and this is nothing else I can do. Is, would that have been her point of view, or not even? I, I can't, I can't speak to her. I, I really don't. I don't want to speak for her, mm-hmm. her for, for her perspective of that. But I will say this: I was when Going Gay came out. I was actually doing an interview with um, the host at an NPR station here in Sacramento, and one of the one of the questions she asked me was, "Did you ever at any time say to yourself?" Oh, yes, I'm gay. And that very question itself sent me spiraling. In the, I'm sitting in the sound booth at the NPR station, and I go into this spiral where I'm thinking, I could never at any point say to myself that I was gay because that meant the Bible was wrong. Right, right. The Bible couldn't be wrong. And if the Bible couldn't be wrong, I had to figure out what happened. And so that six-year time period, regardless of why she left or whatever was going on in her mind— mm-hmm. I just kept thinking the Bible has to be right. What did, what what, ha- what happened? What what am I missing? What what's right. going on? And so it was at the towards the end of that six year period, and, and her her mom, my mother in law, you know, we were we were tight at that point because we all blamed her. You know, we found an excuse to blame her for ending the marriage. Um, and, and she made it easy because she wasn't exactly a saint at, at that point in time. Um, but she gave me books on spiritual warfare. And so I was reading these books on spiritual warfare. And the one thing that kept going through my mind is why am I praying for her? Why am I pleading for her, for God to change her when God would have more of a vested interest than I would? Isn't it's that her soul is at stake and I can't control that. 
but I'm continuing to pray for something that appears to be further and further out of my grasp where there really is no way to fix this. It really is up to her Mm -hmm. if she wants to fix this. And she had no interest in fixing it. And it became very apparent. And so where my brain went with that is that now I'm an ex-minister. I'm out of the ministry. I'm divorced, which is right underneath being gay when it comes to sins. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had run those groups where it was single people who had been divorced. And, and those are the ones that we pity in the church. <laughs> those right. are the ones that, that we think, you know, now you don't fit into the mainstream. He's not talking to you when he does a Valentine's Day uh, yeah. sermon or, you know, so all of these things went through my mind. And that really was where I started to think, okay, what else can this be? And it was at the end of that six year period when, um, because of a manager of mine who said, you know, what do you, I've gotten a job as a trainer. And so the manager said, what do you do to improve your training skills? So the only degree I had at that point was an associate's degree. And so I said, well, I'll go back to school. Cause I, that was all I knew to do to improve anything. And that was the catalyst. That was the thing that started to change my life is because I got in, I, I started studying for my undergraduate degree and I realized that the questions I was asking about that degree were not the questions that I wanted to ask. I wanted to know where the hell is God? Mm-hmm. How did I get here? Mm-hmm. That is very interesting from the point of view of your wife. And I know it's nothing to speak about her or none, not really part of the thing, but just the, the idea that you're entangled with the person you're married with, it just carries right. so much weight to me that it's just, that's so hard to think about bringing the other person into it because of this system that I don't know. Like I, we were having a discussion in there's a discussion in our Facebook group for the Bad Christian Club and they were talking about cheating and how cheating is it ever okay? Could it be okay? But like this particular one, it's like, man, you can see her point of view wasn't like I, it was so easy at the time, right. I bet, for everybody to go, oh, well she cheated on him. What she's right, crazy. Right. Like you said with your mother in law, but man, there's a lot more to underneath that tip of the iceberg. Yes. And that that's so weird. So does that when you start thinking about and so I, I want to be clear, I didn't realize that it was the different types, but there's ex-gay conversion therapy repair. I don't know what the terms are, but what are the different ones? So ex-gay really is more focused on on a biblical response to homosexuality mm-hmm. where it really is based on this is what the Bible says. This is how we respond to that. And like any other sin, we confess it. We uh, turn it over to Jesus and we let Jesus heal us. The second piece of that, when you get into conversion therapy, really is more of it, they tend to be programs. They tend to be focused on scriptures, but they are also bringing in an aspect of of um, psychotherapy. So what so what we would do is is that and, and after I left Love and Action, John Smith, who was the director at that point, you know, he and I are friends, and we talked about how he had changed the ministry because John even realized things aren't working, so we need to do something else. So he, as conversion therapy took kind of infiltrated the Exodus International. Uh, message of change from homosexuality, we started bringing in these aspects of psychology. So you had a problem with your father, you know, you're male, you didn't connect, and that's what the issue is. Or for lesbians, you didn't connect with your mother, you're disconnected from your gender. So these are the things that you need to do to fix that and repair that relationship. And you get in good relationships with same sex, you know, same gender people, and that's how you're going to fix all of that. So that's where the conversion therapy component comes in. Mm-hmm. Reparative therapy is more psychoanalysis. So this is more of what psychologists will do, licensed psychologists, where they delve much more deeply into all of these different aspects of your relationship with your parents. Um, again, drawing on what uh, Sigmund Freud came up with were his, you know, his initial ideas about the parent, parent-child relationship mm-hmm. and what causes it. So, but they're going back to things that were debunked many, many years after that. Even, even Freud came back right. and said, no, there's nothing to worry about. This is part of uh, mm-hmm. you know, human nature. 
So, so they're, they're just, they just look at different aspects of that. So have we got <laughs> to the point now, and I don't know the details or the stats on it, but it's something like the, uh, these, is there any, I'm trying to get my head around, is there any defense or reasonable way that these reparative conversion and ex-gay ministries are not just plainly harmful? Like, I understand where they're coming from. I understand that they can be well-intentioned. I understand they can be biblically right. reasoned. I understand that I, re- not in the too distant past, would have supported some version of them. But at the moment I'm sitting at now, they seem indefensible. And I think that's, as far as I understand, the data does not show them to be at all successful. Do you, do you know the data on that? There is not one ounce of proof that anything has changed anybody's sexual orientation. This, this is another show in itself. I've I mean, you can't find this. one person that says, I was fixed from Exodus International or Love in Action? Like, there's none? No, there's there's nobody. It, so, it, it, And we have to break this down again. You know, what I, does I think that, that mean? Good gosh. So the, the quick, easy answer is that if you're gay, you're gay. If you're straight, you're straight. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of variation when you start talking about human sexuality. So mm-hmm. I do know of people that, had some kind of bisexual tendencies that they got into a marriage, they made it work because they were already attracted to or had some affinity, you know, some affinity towards the opposite sex. And again, we're, we're on the spectrum. So nobody is, is a few people are just, you know, straight one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are people that can make it work. I have to be honest that most of the stories that I have heard is that there's something going on. And I know a lot of people in a lot of high places that are still in those positions that they're, they're saying one thing, but personally, something else is happening behind the scenes. So what I can't do you mean say by that. that? I don't know. I'm not following you there. What kind so of- what I'm what I'm saying is that they're, you know, in cases where they're not having any kind of sexual relationships with their wives, they may have kids. They mm-hmm. may, you know, put up the front of the, the perfect family family. Yeah. And if you know, the least they're not having sex with their wives, but they most likely are, you know, or or again, you know, what I've heard or talked to people. It's a very heavily into gay pornography or mm-hmm. they're having anonymous encounters in the park somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I know that a lot of this stuff happens in the background, but those are not the things that we talk about. There's a, there's a guy. So I talk about this story in my book, Rethinking Everything. There's a guy who contacted me when, I don't know if you guys remember this, last year um, when the, the movie Hidden Figures came out and Kim Burrell had, was caught on tape. Kim Burrell's a gospel singer was caught on tape saying something about the perversion of homosexuality. And she was one of the singers in Hidden Figures. Mm-hmm. And her and uh, Pharrell, uh, what's his name? Uh, the other singer. He, they, were, they were supposed to go on the Ellen show mm-hmm. and sing one of the songs from oh, the movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Ellen disinvited Kim Burrell. So I had written about this for the Huffington Post and a guy contacted me and he said, hey, let me tell you that she's not all that bad. She's a really nice person. She's a friend of mine. So I started going into his background and I found out that this guy was transgender at one point, had decided that he was going to follow Jesus. And so he was a part of her church, said all these wonderful things about her. And so he said, I would like you to write a story as a follow-up to tell about that, you know, don't demonize her, that she really is this kind of person. So I said, you know, tell me about you. Because I went on his, <laughs> his Facebook and I found that he was using gender pronouns that were neutral. He wasn't never he wasn't claiming to be a he or a his. He had a name that was, you know, unisex at best. And so I was trying to get the story. And what I heard from him was he never said he would use terms like I've been delivered, but he would never say from what. And I said, you know what? I've talked to a lot of people. I've interviewed a lot of people. And when you say that that term delivered, what you're saying and what you mean is completely different than what they're hearing. 
-hmm. I grew up in church. I know when you talk about being delivered from Jesus, you're talking about a complete change or transformation that I'm not that way anymore. Everything is different. But when you talk about delivered as an ex-gay, that means I'm fighting the best I can every day to maintain this belief system that I, I want to believe to be true, but my right. nature is telling me it's not. So delivered wouldn't mean, for instance, what you hear as a kid or a teenager or whatever, when somebody says they've been delivered as an example, and because they're trying to show you what's possible, that's like saying, I've been delivered from my sweet tooth, but really you're living on a you know 800 a day calorie diet, dying to eat sugar at every moment, but you just can't. You just, But you have been successful at not. For the most part, that doesn't sound like deliverance from your sweet tooth. If that was a mortal sin, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And that's not what you expected when you thought, "If I go through the program and get delivered, then I'll be free." That is not free for those people, is what you're saying. They're that's still not free for those people. Terribly, it's still wow. terribly difficult for them not to, to, to whatever it is. Right. Yeah. So, so have, having like lived this out, I. Um, I'm curious, like I, I think it was probably like 10 to 12 years ago, maybe you've even heard of this book, but someone recommend, because, you know, this has always been something as I think as Christians, this is one of those tough things of like when you're trying to abide by the Bible and you're like, oh, but this is what it says. And you just go, you know, it's it's maddening. So I read a book and it just made me feel so much better because it's uh it's called You Don't Have to Be Gay. Oh, and yes. And it's by Jeff Conrad. Yeah. Uh, and I was just like, well, there you have it. I mean, this guy yeah. lived it out. He's not gay. He's healed and all that stuff. Um, obviously, I'm at a totally different place with, with this discussion. But when you see books like that or hear from people like that, in your mind, you're like, yeah, they're not different. They think that they are. Or do you think, hmm, they're, you know, completely making it up. So I know the author and the subject of that book. Um, yeah. I've met one and the other was a personal friend. So, and I'm not going to speak to either one of those, <laughs> but I will say this <laughs> is that when you hear the term change, it means something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whenever you hear someone say, I have been changed. You, you have to look behind that word. What exactly does that mean to you? There is a, a group called the voice of the voiceless. And they put out, um, I hope I have the right group. Um, they put out a, a, a book, and I, and I don't have that in front of me, but I wrote an article about this. And I couldn't get past page one because they said on page one, they said, you know, when we talk about change, people expect us to not have these attractions anymore and that we're straight. That's not what we mean. What we mean is finding happiness in Jesus Christ. So, mm -hmm. so they kind of went through and they, they completely changed the term of change before they ever got into I the see. stories of that. So, so it's the same thing. So when I listen to those stories, again, I lived that life. I lived that life for all of those years. And I know that one, that we did suppress our sexuality because we, we, that was the last thing that we wanted. And secondly, that there were still temptations. And thirdly, there is such a strong intrinsic belief system within you that you cannot, unless you want to, break out of that belief system and start to see things from a much different perspective. So when I went to graduate school, you know, I, I studied education. And one of the things that just grabbed my attention was this idea of transformative learning. Because my question was, how do you get from here to here? And especially when you're dealing things with like religion or faith or, or politics or something where you really want to change or perhaps want to change somebody's mind to move them from one place to the other. Mm -hmm. When we change our minds, there is a neural pathway that has to change. This is a physical change in the brain that, that takes place. 
So to get somebody from one place to the other, there are four things that have to happen. And one of those is you have to have an experience that's different than what you're normally, what you're familiar with. Second is that there has to be some kind of cognitive dissonance where you're saying, I was told this, I believe this, but I'm seeing something that's not quite right. The third piece of that is critical thinking, where, you, where now you have all this information and you start to think about what does this mean? And the fourth piece of this, and I've really come to see this in the last couple of years, is empathy. There has to be empathy. Before you can start to look at somebody and say, okay, this is a gay person who Jesus says shouldn't be gay. And now I'm saying that you know maybe there isn't a single gay lifestyle, or maybe this person doesn't act like I thought they would. They're really loving and kind. It's not what I thought that would be. And then you start to critically think that, but until you have that piece of empathy where you can see them as a living, breathing human being that has the same feelings and desires and exactly who you are, it's impossible to cross that line and start to rethink what you really believe to be true and, and what truth is. Yeah. 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 I, I wanted to get into, so, because uh, we wanted to hit your book, because we've been talking a lot about that. You, you have several books. You have the book Going Gay, and, and then your latest book is uh, Rethinking Everything. And I guess that's kind of what I wanted to to talk about here for a second too. Maybe maybe you go into this on the book though. How did you get past your conservative Christian background in the Bible? Maybe being wrong or right. How did you coincide? Where where's your faith line? Are you still a Christian? Like are you? I, I think you are. But are you? How did you make the two worlds come together? Because you are gay, a gay man now, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah and and a married one at that. Yeah. Uh, in fact, that's going to refer to, you know, something you said earlier is about trying to, you know, put the pieces together when you've grown up with this really, you know, strong ideals is that my husband calls me a sleeper cell because he, he says, I'm waiting for that wake word and you're just going to come back out and you're going to be an evangelical again. Because uh, <laughs> there, there are those intrinsic ideas about about gender, you know, men and women and their roles. And I, I've got two very progressive daughters in the San Francisco yeah. State. Um, you know, so so a lot of that is ingrained. But in, in regards to your question is that when I went back to school and when, and I did tell this story, I think I tell it both in Going Gay and I kind of elaborate on this more and rethinking everything, is that I was doing an assignment, sitting in this hotel room, and I typed in a question in, you know, in the search bar, and, I, and that's when I realized this, that's not my question. And I wanted to know, is God real? I wanted to know, you know, what evidence do we actually have for the Bible? What happened with Noah's Ark? What happened with, you know, is Jesus real? Where did we come from? Where did, where did all this come from? So that began a very long journey. And, and the detractors that I get or the emails that I get where you didn't do it right, you didn't pray hard enough, you, mm-hmm. didn't, you don't really know Jesus or you're, you're not intellectual enough or you're too intellectual. So, you know, I get all of this, but you have to think of this over a very long period of time where I began to dismantle what I believed and I began to go back. What I did in rethinking everything is I went all the way back. And I wanted to know, where did my faith come from? Where did religion come from? So I went and I looked at archaeology. I looked at history. I looked at where the, where the Bible originated. Where did Judaism get their, uh, their text? How do we come up with the canons? And, and those had changed over time. So you see from the very beginning of Jesus' life, and I go back before that, but you start to see a pattern. You start to see that when religion developed, there was very much a political um, ideology went, that went with it. And if you look back further in history, you see that where there was a priest, the priest was almost always a politician. Mm-hmm. So you see the same thing with Judaism. You see where there was a priest, there was a politician. Um, and then as Christianity developed, that again had changed and molded and shaped depending on who was in charge. Uh, for the first 100 years, Judaism and Christianity were virtually the same thing. 
Uh, we find in Judaism that there were many gods, that Yahweh was a rewrite of many gods that were found in the Old Testament. So again, if you go back, and again, you know, what I did was stepped out of this idea of evangelical scholars. I wanted to know, what does the rest of the world think? Mm -hmm. What other opinions are there? Most of the world does not see it the way that evangelicals see it, right. is that we have been very much moved into this closet of, of belief, and it's always been that way. So I took it apart. I took everything apart. So when I, when I went through my own change and transformation, I went back to the beginning. Um, I, in regards to my own uh, moniker, I don't take on the, the term Christian anymore. I call myself a truth seeker because I believe that if God exists, that God, uh, God takes all of this. He ta he's, he's not afraid of science. He's not afraid of human beings the way that we are. He's not afraid of complications. He's not afraid of, of math and, and the numbers and things coming out differently than what we believe to be the Old Testament or the New Testament to be as fundamentalists. So I, I got rid of that. I, I took all of that away. Yeah. Um, and, and the question is not, does God exist? But the question is, how does God exist? How do we believe God exists? So we have a new poll came out that 90% of Americans believe that God or some form of higher power exists, but we're making laws based on, on those in Congress who do not represent the religious views of most of America mm -hmm. and those policies and laws that are being made are discriminating against the majority, majority but they're, they're mis discriminating against a segment of society that has different views than they have. And again, we all believe, most of us believe in God at some point, but we believe about him differently. So at what point do we say to America, we've got to have a discussion about this? Not This isn't a discussion, again, about God's existence, but it's a discussion about how he exists and at, how far do we want to go letting those beliefs or our leaders define those mm -hmm. beliefs for a majority of us when they have different beliefs than what we have. That's a good point. That's a, it's a little bit hard for some people to look at that. Most people want it to be a bit simpler than you put it there. Yes. It's just God or no. Yeah. Most people think, are they with me or not? The God and right. the godless, you know, that's, but that's not really the case. And something else you said that I think is really interesting is because I was the same, I've been the same way here when you talked about the real scholar, not you didn't say real scholars. You said there's evangelical Christian scholars and the everybody else. And when you said that, it reminds me of just of the term secular and the way that in Christian circles, and we talked about this before with music, like the way you grew up, Joey. It's like, well, there's you know all the music we can listen to, and then there's this other little tiny spec called secular music, and we don't listen to that. Like as if the preponderance was in the normal Christian sphere. And that's the way that Christians think about theology or scholarship. They go, well, there's all the evangelical scholars at Moody and everywhere else. And then, you know, there's also that secular stuff where the people are deluded and don't actually know what you're talking about. Anyway, but just just to get your head around the, the fact of what does everybody else think that are not evil people that are trying to do scholarly work, if you've got it in your head that that's to be tossed out or weighted as a tiny fraction, that maybe that's a little cognitive dissonance for you to recognize there. Just the, the, the weight of what all of secularism implies, and that only holds up if you can demonize all of secularism. If you, if you go, oh, those are normal people doing real rational work, you know, you've got some dissonance if you can't see that. Right. Right. And, and you know, what's interesting about this is, is that I found this, is that when Protestantism was started in the 16th century, started... And they could see that there was going to be a division between the Catholic Church and Protestants. Both sides blamed the devil. For the reason <laughs> right, that they right. Yeah. Exactly. 
So this continues. We're in this. We're in the mm-hmm. same place. We still see religion the same way. Is, is that if you're not with us, then you're of the devil, and it's you know you're not of God. So there's 41,000 different sects and denominations of Christianity. Which one is true? Yeah, yeah. Do you still believe in a potential savior of the world or anything like that, or are you are you just just blank like right now? There, you believe maybe there's a God, but you're trying to find him. Well, I, I think if there's a God, God exists in, in all things that are true. Um, I, I don't think there's a need for a savior of the world because I think we exist as we exist. And, yeah. you know, and when you start to look at Jesus' life, there are, there are two places where it references Jesus. One is with Josephus and the other was with a, a senator who wrote about the, the Christians. We have no information about whether Jesus lived or died. I mean, it's, it's very little information out there other than what was written in the Gospels, which became canonized, mm-hmm. which were never meant to be canonized mm-hmm. because there were, diff- there were different stories about different eras and different pieces of, of Jesus' ministry. So when you start to take that apart and think, well, you know, who he was is, is really theology. When you start talking about who Jesus was or what his life was, you, you go into theology because we don't have historical documents about that. So it's very difficult to look at what he did or didn't do or how that applies to to different lives. Um, there were, there are multiple saviors with very similar stories. Again, throughout history, there was already a virgin birth and baptism and, you know, all of these things yeah. have happened multiple times throughout history. So it's difficult to say that, yes, Jesus was the one. Um, if you're looking at fact based, you know, and then for those of us who grew up in the fundamentalist faith, then we go over to our experience. Well, my, my experience mm-hmm. tells me that that's true. So then, you know, then you go back to this idea of belief. And when you believe something, you're going to emotionally and experientially feel that belief. That's how we're wired, is that our brains automatically will confirm what it is we believe to be true. So I don't, I, and, and again, knowing how our, our brains um, create stories and how we like to have the comfort of believing what we believe, you know, I, I, I think we have to kind of step back and rethink this. And, and at, at the very least, we have to say to others, I cannot speak for you. I don't know what your experience is like. I'm going to let that be what it is. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. interesting. We were talking about this last week, kind of bouncing off what you just said. It's that idea, too, of when you're in, the, when you're in it, it's so much easier to agree with it, and you just hear what you hear, and, and it's hard to think outside of, of that box. Like, you're right. Like, when you, when you do try to take the time, that, that's the thing that I always uh, think is interesting, that people are scared of, like, rethinking God or what you've been told or all that, because what that actually means is you are in pursuit of God. You are in pursuit of God. You, you're looking for truth. You, right. like, like you're not doing that less now. You might even be doing it more with a more honest heart, right? Right. Yeah. And so I, I think that, I think that scares people. It's way easier just to go, nah, that, you know, this is what I've been told. And this is just the right, like you say about your, your granddad, he didn't know much, but he knew Jesus. But in reality, what does that mean? Like, I mean, really, what does that mean? Like, does he, all he just knows is what somebody told him probably or something like that. You know, not, not, was he really pursuing God? Was he, I, I mean, I, and I'm not calling out your granddad. I'm, I'm, just, I, I'm calling, you know, when I hear that same thing growing up in South Carolina and he didn't know much, just, you know, but he knew Jesus, like that's almost like supposed to supposed to be a badge of honor, but in a way well, it's yeah. not really pursuing truth. Well, that's a bad, not, that's a bad one. If you, it depends on how you, I mean, that there's a bad, uh, I don't know what you'd call it property-wise, but if you go, he doesn't know much, but he knows Jesus, and then the next statement out of anybody's mouth is, Jesus is everything, then right. he knows right. everything then. Now right. let him tell you where, how to every- vote, where to dress, and what's right, and what science that's says. Right. And how to vote. I mean, so that's the, the insidious part there. Is that it, That's a humble admission that he doesn't know much, but he knows Jesus, which everybody will grant. Now, 
Yeah. Therefore, he's the authority because he, he knows everything. Jesus is everything. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, you know, what I think has happened is, is that in this age, right, so coming out of that Jesus movement period of the 70s is that we're in an age where we grew up. So if my experience happens to be conversion therapy, and that was, it was actually my divorce that sent me on this path. But other people have grown up in this name and claim it, pray it, believe it, do all the right things, and then God will grant you this abundant life. And I think we've come to this place in history where we saw the religious right take over the political realm in the late 70s, and now we've gotten to Donald Trump being in office. And you've got all of these people going, wait a minute, this didn't turn out like I thought it would. Yeah, the same but with then, the conversion therapy and all that. And the right. name it, claim it. Well, when, when, when's it going to start then? Right. We've had a few and decades. So, <laughs> and, and that's where the book came from, is that as I, as, you know, when I finished going gay and started talking to all of these families, I found out that a lot of them had been thrown out of the churches I found people who got divorced that were thrown out of their churches or, you know, there's all of this surrounding um, ideologies about what should be, but they aren't really what they are. And I think we're at a place now, even with, you know, and, and I think the culmination of Donald Trump really exemplifies where the evangelical church has come is that the James Dobsons and the Jerry Falwell Juniors and Pat Robertsons, they, they got what they want. They got the power that they want, but they did it at a cost. They've let go of that initial piece of faith that said Jesus is love and Jesus is forgiveness. And there's a, a certain way to live. There's a moral way to live. And they've let that go for the power. And so I think what's happened is it's left behind a lot of people who are thinking and re-questioning, is this what my faith is about? Is, is mm-hmm. this, this is where we got this from doing all of this and sending all that money and all that support. This is where we, we came to, um, you know, and I know that 80% of white evangelicals support Donald Trump, but I think there's a, another portion of that that are saying this this didn't this didn't add Definitely. up this this isn't right and, you know, even in my own family my my parents who are who are older now they didn't vote for trump and even the discussion they're they are as far right as you can go they're they are so not democrats but they couldn't do it because yeah. they felt such a conviction of god is love god is truth and this yeah. is not what we believe and you know thank god that's that's not how i was raised so i do see a distinction between this self-righteous right-wing Christianity and what I believed and was raised to believe about God. It's crazy what you just described, too. It's like you almost can feel Jesus looking into the future and saying, Paul, you got to say, you got to tell him the greatest of these is love because (laughs) there's going to come a point in time when they're just, you know, they're going to have an agenda and they're going to want to sacrifice love, but make sure they know love is the most important thing. It's just unreal how we have forfeited that well hold on a second we gotta give him one second to revisit the the gender where he arrived at gender on that i I do i was interested in that honestly if we could well you want to know my position on gender well yeah i mean just it just seems like it's a nuanced one if you've done all this thinking and arrived all these things and you've uh, it sounds like you were saying you've arrived at some other conclusions that don't sound like what people would expect from you and if so i'm curious well, I, I, I have arrived at the progressive conclusion that that is true. I know what tr- what is true is that we are very um, we're a mixture of things. There is no there's not just male and female. There are different. You know, there's DNA, there's um, brain sex, there's all of these things that that make us who we are. So you have intersex people. You've got people that, you know, are transgender. You've got people that are gay. You've got people. And, and there's a difference between gender and, and sexuality. Um, but. You know, there, we like to separate things. And I know you guys, you know, living in the South, I especially know how things are separated in the South. Yeah. 
And I, and I, and it's in, it's ingrained in me what women should do and what men should do. And yet I know that it's not that way. And I just, I just learned this recently that even in the Talmud, that there are six different words for gender in the Jewish Talmud. So, so it exists, it's, it's existed for a long time, but here in America, of course, we have very distinct ideas about what men and women are, which restroom they should use, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not that way. So, you know, I was kind of half joking, but you know, in my house, because I make comments about what women should do or what men should do, or it, it, especially when we're watching TV, you know, everybody's eyes suddenly right. go on me because I make such a stupid, conservative, uneducated statement. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's not what I believe to be true, but it is what I feel sometimes right. because that's how I was raised. It's, there's just, it's very distinct and separated. It's, so my sister has a master's degree, right? She was a sergeant major in the army. And when we go to my parents' house and we're all together, the women are still in the kitchen and the men are still outside waiting. You know? Yeah, right. You're right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yep. One hundred percent. Uh okay. All right. Well, we're glad we cleared that up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but your new book is coming out in the fall. Uh but you have your other book already out. It came out back in yes. twenty fourteen, Going Gay. And your new book's called Rethinking Everything When Faith and Reality Don't Make Sense. And it's Tim Rimel. Uh, you can go to a site, uh, Tim Rimel, that's R-Y-M-E-L dot com. Find out more about all of that. Tim, we really do appreciate you coming on the show, though, man. We yeah, this was terrific. Nice. I yeah. very much enjoyed it. been a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. All right, Tim Rimel, everybody. Yeah. Very good. There's your I applause wanted to tell back, him. I everybody wanted... that complained about the applause missing after the— uh... That's right. There it is. I, so I, want, I meant to tell him I wanted to apologize. Joey didn't talk much, and it's because Joey's a pastor at a mega church, and they're scared of gay people. Right. <laughs> no, it's, it's, <laughs> nah. it's crazy. I think I, I I get the sense that sometimes we all just naturally take turns. No, but you don't off. like gay people. You're you a pastor at a church that is not gay admit affirming. Admit it. Why can't you just be honest for once? <laughs> Why can't you be honest? You're, you're scared buying, of gay you're people. You weren't buying any of that liberal crap he was spewing. You weren't doing that. As soon as he said he <laughs> he rethought the Bible, he you, you couldn't. Said, nope. You I saw you. I saw hairs start growing on your bald head. <laughs> okay, cool, good. Well, hey, I appreciate it, Joey. <laughs> no, go ahead, Joey. Yeah, no, no, go ahead. I, actually, uh, I, I truly, I truly forgot what I was going to say. Something no. about where we take the turns Alzheimer's in interviews. Has got him Wait, I didn't hear what Matt just something said. Something about what? we take turns in interviews or on the same oh, wavelength yeah, 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 yeah. or something. Oh, no, yeah, I was yeah, just going to yeah, yeah. say, I think sometimes we just naturally take turns somewhat opting out just because three people trying to get their questions in. Like, of course, I had a lot of questions. I mean, this is like, this is the kind of stuff I love, but three people asking people, uh, I've just learned over the years. I'm a very yeah. experienced podcaster. Mm-hmm. Just been Joey there, stance, done Joey's that. Joey's stance is you shouldn't have three people talking on a podcast. My, I'm just my saying stance is three, you shouldn't have three people on a podcast. How yeah, many times do you see, like in news stories, an interview, three interviewers <laughs> like, one person, with, the, yeah. with one microphone basically saying, no, 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 here's my question. Here's my, I mean, obviously, yeah. like with, with sporting events and stuff, you it's, got a big yeah, old this, crowd. Our interviews are just press conferences. Yeah. <laughs> it's like or it's Dan Rather, Tom Brokaw, and Connie Chung all get sitting around one person and talking, <laughs> taking turns asking questions. I, I just want to say Connie that I was, I, was, I was humbled during that time of, because I just wanted to give my brothers a chance to, to speak. And I'm slow to speak, quick to listen. I mean, it's scriptural. Yeah. That's so I'm just basic. trying to yeah. abide by the New Testament. 
New Testament yeah. teachings. But and also the whole thing where you're scared of gay people. <laughs> I mean, it's that too, just that too. All right. Anyway, but I tell you who ain't, who isn't scared of gay people is that old BC Club. That BC Club ain't scared. They they love gay people. Yeah, if you really want to hear what we think about gay people, you have to join the BC Club where we you Matt, know, did you tell Toby? Yeah. That what? Matt, did you Toby, you you do know that like the club is in rapid decline. Like um is, way more this people is gonna be good. opting out this than is gonna joining. Be good. Yeah. Did you know that? Did Keep you know going. That, you have to play along. You have to hey, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Three people asking questions <laughs> on a podcast. Yeah, that's bad. But this isn't bad. <laughs> tell the listeners. <laughs> you're the one person. Tell the listeners how our BC Club, which helps make this thing happen, one of the only ways it happened, tell them mega church pastor Joey Svensson, who is scared of gay people, tell them why the BC Club is in decline. Yeah, so basically what has been going <laughs> on late... <laughs> <laughs> Every word you say, you pastors, man, you make me laugh. Keep going. Hey, look, check this out. This is like <laughs> there are five. I've got five BC club names. In four out of the five, their names start with an A. That's that's wow. unbelievable. That is unbelievable. Wow. I bet asshole you, Jenkins. I, listen uh, to this. Anal, anal Stevens. <laughs> no, did you know that that did you know that J words are extremely rare? But when it comes to names, they're not. Think about it. Joshua, Joseph, um, Jim, Jamie, Jack, Jordan, John, Jack, Jimmy. I mean, there are so many J names. Jorge. I think J names are just, they're just so fun. Jameson. Ja, 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 ja. Everybody wants to start with a ja, ja, But, but aren't Joey. we talking about A names, though? And that's not yeah, 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 yeah. including the phonetic yeah. G sound that makes the J sound. Yeah, so that's anyway, right. Aaron Corkum. What's his sin, Toby? He's gay. He is gay. <laughs> Aaron Adams. What's his sin? He does not call out gay people for their right. sin. Right. Adrian Anderson. His sin is that he is uh, affirming, and that's a sin to be affirming. Andrea Bimnati. She uh, once told a gay joke. Or it could be Bernati. No, I mean, no, no, I'm sorry. She once made a... What, no, that one. Damn <laughs> eyes. I can't tell if that's an M or, a, or an R and an N. I seriously, I'm looking closely. Like, I'm an old guy. I'm looking closely at her name. I think it's either Burn. Tim, Burn Tim's going to listen or, to this podcast and be like, I, he's going he's gonna to listen to the podcast and the end of this podcast, he's going to be like, what in the hell did I dig into? <laughs> they did a list. The group that follows them pays money to be in a club with him. All hate gay people. That's not. We're joking here. <laughs> yeah, it's, a ba- it's, it's bad jokes. At, at yeah, that. I admit no, that. but started th- these... by the mega church pastor started this with his J. I thought he was saying gay gay names, but he no, was but saying th- J names. Yeah, this these... the Joey loves to tell J jokes. But yeah. these, but these... <laughs> <laughs> you just can't stop him with the J jokes. <laughs> It's, these are the times, though, when I seriously think... There's this think, Jay fella that walked into a bar. <laughs> <laughs> you ever been to a Jay bar? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. Jay bars? Man, these they are, the are t- flaming. These are the times, though, where I really wonder, why do people listen they to don't. I, like, I, I, I They know. don't. Yeah. Because they haven't they, been. No, they listen to the podcast, but I have the amp- Apple analytics now. They're a lot more detailed. They stop listening when you go into some goofy routine about the BC Club. 
<laughs> it, it drops by about 20 or 30% at this moment of the podcast. Gotcha. Be, Stephen exactly. Harder. He had J sex. <laughs> <laughs> His well, name's for, Harder. Harder sex. Harder J sex. Well, friends, we do appreciate your listenership. Everybody who is they not still listening. listening. Well, let's get out of here. Well, Screw y'all. If, if you're still if, here, if anybody is here, you. of course you should join the BC Club. But the real reason, the best reason, is just that we get we do another episode every week, and that episode oh, yeah. is loose, looser than this, if you can imagine that. Mm. Um, and it's fun. And then the, obviously the community that we have or have built or built itself, I would say, Amen. and regulates itself very well um it's mm. a fun thing to have you be part of that experiment and you'll like the extra podcast and so forth so if you've been thinking about joining let me ask you just go ahead. again if you listen this far in the podcast you got no business not being in our you're in the right place yeah. so go ahead and join the club see y'all